are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are talking about methadone, the updates on the federal guidelines, and some of the problem areas that we find in our methadone OTPs. So we're here to answer all your questions and get you up to speed on the world of methadone. All right, Paula, you're going to give us an introduction and we'll get going. All right. So, you know, just to review, we have another episode on methadone. And uh, you can refer to that as a basic primer on the medication known as methadone in terms of its use for treating opioid use disorder. Tonight, we're going to be talking about methadone in the context of opioid treatment programs or OTPs. In the United States, methadone is only allowable for the treatment of opioid use disorder in the setting of a federally regulated program that are called opioid treatment programs. So we can't dispense it or prescribe it out of primary care provided, you know, practices or specialty practices or pharmacies or even hospitals beyond three days. And that's because of the Controlled Substance Act way back, uh, decide, you know, determined that methadone being a Schedule II medication with um, the potential for a risk, excuse me, the potential for abuse and misuse, especially in the hands of people with a known opioid use disorder, needs to be highly regulated. So a lot of rules were created around the use of methadone. Um, this dates back to the to when OTPs were created in the 1970s. And, you know, they were created, I think, to keep people safe in terms of the medication itself, because methadone does have inherent risks. And then they were also created, um, I think, you know, I mean, this is conjecture, but they were created out of some um, stigma towards people with addiction because there was distrust amongst the population. So um, they were made to protect people from, you know, diverting the medication or overusing the medication. And these rules have really stayed in place um, over all these decades, right, Darlene? Um, yes, very yeah. little, very little has changed for exactly. a really long time. Right. And so we're dealing with an antiquated system from the 1970s. There have been federal guideline changes over the years. There was a guideline published in 2007. There was an updated guideline published in 2015. And that is the guideline that we, and previous to that, there were guidelines in 96 and 99 and 2001, et cetera. So over the years, you know, SAMHSA, who kind of is the um, presiding governmental body over opioid treatment programs, has released federal guidelines in order to help guide best practice. So, you know, currently we rely on the federal guidelines for opioid treatment programs publication January 2015. And you can find this online if you Google that. It's downloadable. It's very interesting. It's very comprehensive. It gives you all the answers. And it gives you 
you know, who who should run an OTP, what your medical director should and shouldn't do, who is eligible to be admitted into an OTP, how you induct kind of facility management, how you induct someone on methadone and what the general rules are, how people must keep their medication safe if they have an unsupervised dose on a weekend, for example. Um, and then there's lots more regulations and, and guidelines within that document, you know, and that tells us all sorts of things about, you know, quality improvement and if we need to taper someone and how often we should do medical examinations, how to manage pregnant people. And then when we're clinically assessing people, what things to consider, like we need to evaluate co-occurring mental health disorders, trauma, tobacco use, other substance use disorders. We need to look for transmissible diseases like HIV and hepatitis. And then when we're discussing treatment plans, we need to look at you know recovery-oriented systems of care and in a context of cultural competency, um, provide them alternatives um, to treatment within and um, without the OTP. So that being said, and there's more, there's a lot more in the document. It's a really comprehensive document. So that is what's in the federal guideline. It, it explicitly talks about how people earn take-home privileges for methadone, which has been an area of interest, especially if you are a participant in an OTP, because your life really begins to revolve around this clinic, because according to the guidelines, you have to attend the clinic daily to receive your methadone dose until you've been in treatment for 90 days. This is the old guideline. And you have negative urine drug screens and you're participating in the treatment as prescribed and you're not involved in criminal behavior, et cetera. And for some people, that's that's a barrier to care and they cannot participate daily. They don't have transport or they live in a rural area, et cetera. So there have been some changes, and we're going to talk about that now. COVID kind of changed everything. I like to think it changed everything. It didn't change everything, but it definitely changed a lot of things for OTPs because suddenly, of course, everything was shut down and people who were coming to their OTP daily, had, we had to make a lot of allowances and changes. And what happened out of what we, what did we learn from the pandemic and then how are we moving forward and how is the government moving forward with a proposed rule changes to otps and then b or rather they might be in reverse order but b what have they decided is a change now already before these proposed rule changes come into effect so that's what we're going to talk about tonight yeah i think that's great the current changes that have already been coming into effect over this next year, it's very much more patient centric. And I think that's important. But even as we go, as you go through these federal guidelines, even the ones from 2015, I, I feel like when you talked about it's really kind of antiquated, some of these older guidelines, when you read the 2015 guidelines, it does talk about that, about much more patient centric care, and then going forward, a lot of these proposed rule changes is a lot about using, you know, getting away from stigmatizing language and really trying to remove these barriers to care and retain patients in treatment. And, you know, historically in the past, it was a lot of very kind of narrow focused that we do one thing. 
And it's very much about integrating primary care into treatment settings that we have the patient there we ha- and we know that the risks and the comorbidity of m- multiple other medical conditions and because you have addiction there, the risk is so high. And so we need to provide the mental health, we need to provide the primary care services, the infectious disease services all in one setting. And that's actually supported and encouraged. And that has been since 2015. That's actually not a new recommendation. And I think there's a lot of providers out there and there's a lot of facilities that are still un- operating under this that we can't provide those services because we're not allowed to. So it's one thing I think we need to just make really clear that that's you. it's encouraged. I know sometimes it's a funding situation and a staffing, but that's something that this is supported and encouraged and you are allowed. So I think that's really important. And that's really in these proposed rule changes coming forward. So we'll get more in the nitty gritty. Let's talk about first like, Paula, let's talk about what's happening now. That's the most kind of really life-changing and I think really helps to the first step in the right direction, try to remove some of these barriers to care. Uh, Well, let's let's go back a little bit. During COVID, because people couldn't access their OTPs in person, the SAMHSA published uh, an exemption, basically, to opioid treatment programs in March of 2020, saying it was a blanket exception for all stable patients, saying that they can receive up to 28 days of take-home doses immediately. And they could also give four, up to 14 days of take-home medication um, doses for patients who are less stable, as long as the OTP believed they could safely handle that. And, you know, three years later now, since this exemption was granted, we have a lot of data to show what happened with that. I mean, those of us who were involved with OTP, to to think about just granting someone 28 days of take-home doses, regardless of length of treatment, et cetera, is kind of mind-blowing to us, right? I've been involved with OTP since 2007, and it's like, this is like the bread and this is the brick and mortar of OTP is like earning your take-homes, you know? So this was a big change. But what we found is that, um, you know, these exemptions have increased treatment engagement. They've improved patient satisfaction with care. And there really have been relatively few incidents of misuse or medication diversion. And, you know, okay, big, big surprise. Not really, right? People deserve this autonomy and they deserve the access to care. So from this, SAMHSA has concluded that they, and I'm quoting them actually, that there is sufficient evidence that this exemption has enhanced and encouraged use of OTP services, which, you know, at this time in our uh, current crisis with fentanyl overdose mortality increasing so rapidly, it's absolutely imperative that we increase access to care for all MOUD, especially methadone, because methadone is a good option for people. So that exemption was announced over three years ago, and we were all wondering what was going to happen because obviously the pandemic's you know gone away and what are we going to do? So in April of 2023, just barely, they announced what was called the guidance. It's kind of like the godfather, but the guidance. And what they said is really um, upon the expiration of the COVID-19 public health emergency, we were going to remain, uh, this exemption was going to remain in effect uh, for a period of a year from the end of the public health emergency or until such time the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services publishes final rules revising 42 CFR Part Part 8. So 
like we talked about, there are proposed rulemaking um, that have been undertaken and they're they're reviewing those rules that have been proposed from the public in currently, and we don't know when they're gonna make final decision. But for the moment, they're basically extending and making somewhat permanent this this um, exemption. And it makes a big difference because now we can give people who are in treatment from days zero to 14 up to seven unsupervised take-home doses. Now, it doesn't mean you have to, and it doesn't mean that a participant automatically can demand seven take-home doses. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and if if a client's in treatment from days 13, excuse me, 15 to 30 in their OTP, they can earn or they can be given up to 14 unsupervised take-home doses. And then for people who are in the treatment program for 31 days and longer, they can get 28 um, unsupervised take-home doses of methadone. Now, this just gives medical directors more freedom and autonomy. It doesn't mean that you have to, and you still have to look at certain criteria. So Darlene, you and I both medical directors of OTPs. We don't just, everyone who comes in say, oh yeah, I'm going to give them seven take-home doses. We need to evaluate whether they um, have an absence of an active substance use disorder that would increase the risk of harm as it relates to the potential for overdose. So for example, someone is still actively using fentanyl and is not able to stop. And while you're inducing them on methadone, they're still using opioids. That That is not stable, right? They still are actively um, experiencing their substance use disorder and they are at risk from harm for overdose. So they would not be good candidates for automatic take-home doses. Another thing you uh, would want to take into consideration is the regularity of attendance for supervised medication administration. So if people show up to dose every day or they have been, then that's a good sign that they're trustworthy. You know they've been taking their dose every day. The risk for diversion is lower. They're not AWOLing. And in, you know, historically in OTPs, well, and currently, we track AWOLs because it gives us an indication of what might be going on with the patient. Are they unable to come because of transportation issues or is it that they're using or is it that they don't really need the methadone that they're taking and they're skipping doses in between? You also have to evaluate for absence of serious behavioral problems. And if people are having serious behavioral problems, then, you know, they're not, you're not considering them stable enough to have take-home doses of methadone. And then also you want to be sure that they don't have recent diversion activity that you know about. Um, and there's basic things like you need to know they can safely transport and store methadone. So that's just a given. And then anything else that you would think is not appropriate for someone to have take-home doses. So those are kind of the things you have to take into consideration, but this is just big news otherwise because it means that we can give people these extra doses that we couldn't before, before waiting 90 days or six months or longer in treatment. And it's huge for people accessing care and keeping working, or I am in a rural area and we have people that travel sometimes, you know, over an hour and a half to come to our OTP. And that this is huge for them that we can now advance them to more unsupervised take-home doses much quicker. So that's the main um, guidance um, we have to, to go on. And we still go on the eight-point and the five-point criteria. And I don't know, Darlene, is that is that okay? We want to talk about anything else with the, the guidance no, I, that was just I released? think that's really good. And I think that's such... A groundbreaking 
point that you just bring up there, because for people who are in rural areas or patients who are who don't have transportation, like you said, you have a patient who are driving an hour, an hour one way just to get to treatment. That's such a barrier to care. Actually, an hour, 40 minutes each way. Yeah. yeah, we have we have a patient that drives that far every single day. Yeah. Yeah. And so removing that 90 day like limit is huge. I mean, that's a really and and so being able to now just engage patients in treatment, I think that's really a big deal. So I think that's big. So these proposed rule changes, let's talk about that. So this is this hasn't gone into effect, but this is something that you certainly can make comments on if you want to read more about that. We're taking this from, if you go to SAMHSA, this is under what's called 42 CFR Part 8, Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. And these are, this is just some highlights, but how this is affecting is the admission criteria. One of the proposed updates in this is removing the one-year requirement for opiate addiction before admission to an opiate. So this is making it, again, more patient-centered and favoring your clinical judgment. So you're looking at a person, what they're saying is considering a person's problematic pattern of opiate use. Because you can have someone who has less than a year of um, opiate use who has a very serious problem, especially with the fentanyl and the substances that we're using, that we're seeing patients using nowadays. That, along with including in that, you know, the admission criteria, including extending this take-home doses of methadone and accessing telehealth. So who are wanting to start on buprenorphine could now have the option to do an induction or an initiation buprenorphine from a telehealth visit. So this gives them an option of if transportation or if we need to get immediate access, then a telehealth visit could be their initial visit. And so that is one of the proposed rule changes. This does not include methadone. So methadone would still require, because of the other safety measures that are required and issues with methadone, including cardiac screening, you would still require an in-person evaluation and dosing. And then Paula, do you wanna go over some of the other proposed rule changes? Yeah, sure. Um, generally, they want to remove stigmatizing and outdated language, um, again, supporting a more patient-centered approach and reducing barriers to receiving care. I really like that they say at the end of one of the explanations of what the proposed rule changes aim to do is they aim to promote the chronic disease model of management of OUD while removing barriers to providing individualized care. And this is designed to encourage patient engagement and to reduce the need for individuals to attend an OTP each day to receive medication. Now, this is this is me talking, not not the <laughs> guidelines. It's been really interesting when these federal, uh, when their proposed rule changes were open for commentary before they closed, 
and are being reviewed. It was fascinating to watch what was going on on Twitter and to see the polarization between organizations that are, are more traditional and want OTPs to remain how they are and, you know, are concerned about how the therapeutic effect of daily dosing will will uh, go away if with these changes possibly and also the risk of diversion or overdose may increase versus uh, people in long-term recovery and uh, people advocates for people with OUD and I'd say more harm reductionists on the other side saying no we this is what needs to happen like we cannot be gatekeepers of this life-saving medication. Like this needs to be taken away and given the autonomy needs to be given to the people with the disease state or not even the disease state with the, with the current condition. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating to watch that back and forth, you know, so there, there's a move towards changing the language, which is very good. There's actually quite a lot of um, changes around accreditation and certification um, changes, which I think will be good. We're getting ready to get accredited, and wow, it's a huge process. I mean, it's kind of like getting accredited at your hospital or clinic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have some updates that reflect um, definition of a qualifying practitioner. So going from you and I were just talking about this before we started recording, Darlene, like what mm -hmm. is considered a qualifying practitioner in terms of who's able to prescribe and dispense buprenorphine and methadone and an OTP. And now the proposed rule change include a physician who's appropriately licensed, um, also uh, broadly defines a practitioner as a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. Again, this will support, you know, staffing barriers in certain areas that cannot hire um, physicians and trusting that our nurse practitioner and physician assistant colleagues who work in addiction medicine um, can adequately take care of our patients in an OTP. And you talk too about admissions criteria. They they address split dosing and um, how that now will just become something that you as a medical director can decide to do if it in your clinical judgment is the right thing to do for the individual. Previously, we had to apply for an exemption, excuse me, an exception to the federal government to do things like split someone's once daily dose of methadone. Even previous to that, Darlene, you and I remember when we were required to measure peak and trough levels of methadone to do such things. So they're making it more, um, you know, putting it more in the hands of the, of the well, practitioner to yeah. decide. Much yeah. more autonomy and much more about yeah. giving where patient centric but also putting it back on the practitioner to use your clinical knowledge and judgment so that you're doing what's in the best interest of the patient and what's medically sound and and following appropriate guidelines but i think also paying attention to the evolving landscape of substance use i mean there is some proposed rule changes and that are going out there talking about that you know we have our minimum starting doses and then you have, you know, you have these exemptions that you have to apply if you have to, you know, how fast you can increase. But when we have patients who are coming in on these like super high doses of fentanyl and these other substances, we have to be able to address that. Otherwise, they're in they're still in withdrawal and they're going out and relapsing. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think we're recognizing that now that we, if we have these just artificial caps that were really put in place, like you said, 40 years ago, when we didn't, we honestly didn't have this crisis that we're in now. I think we're now starting to look at, we need to be able to address that and we need to be able to you know, put that into the practitioners. But again, that does put a lot more weight on us that you really need to carefully know your patient. You need to do careful histories, very careful histories, physical exams, and get get that information when you're when you're and then use these guidelines and follow them closely. Yeah, and remember that methadone is still a dangerous medication, a full opioid agonist. Yes. And more people die in the first two weeks of starting methadone than they do at any other time of being on methadone. The other things that we need to just point out as part of these proposed rule changes is a far um, larger emphasis on harm reduction, which is wonderful. And they're actually made an emphasis on making sure all OTP participants have access to naloxone, which is kind of mind blowing that it's taken this long for um, the guidelines to include naloxone as routine part of treatment. And it's also, like you said before, it's including and kind of encouraging OTPs to become a medical home. And you, yes. you said that really eloquently at the beginning, but we should be treating hepatitis C and HIV and providing PrEP and treating mental health disorders and recognizing trauma and providing contraception and doing all those things that people need Um for their for them to be healthier, happier humans in their OTP, especially since this might be the only interaction that they have with the healthcare system. So um, those are those are kind of most of the changes that have been recommended, um, and we'll see which ones get thrown out and which ones get written into a federal yeah. guideline. One of the things that was proposed, and actually, this is not proposed. This is in the MA uh, the. The, the act, the bill that's been suggested, now I'm, I'm blanking on the name, um, but is that med- methadone actually start being dispensed at pharmacies. So those are kind of, there's steps down the road that are even beyond these federal rule changes. And mm-hmm. I, I think that this is just the beginning of the change. And yeah. I agree with you, Darlene. I think we're going to see far greater license to escalate people's doses of methadone quicker because of fentanyl tolerance. I have a guy who I'm trying to get stabilized who's been using really high doses of fentanyl and it's I just know he's miserable while I'm trying to get him there safely and according to the guidelines so we're going to see those changes come down the line and I think thankfully people are thinking outside the box of how else can we make this an accessible Mm -hmm. treatment option to people whether it's medication units which actually are now allowable so have methadone medication unit at a hospital or a pharmacy in rural areas especially, or at some point is methadone going to be allowable to be dispensed directly from a pharmacy from a practitioner who has special training? So kind of like the buprenorphine model as it was in 2002. So following, these are ads that have been on just problem areas that other practitioners across the country have talked about that they're having in their OTPs. And these are just kind of continued issues. So let's just quickly talk about those, Paula. So what do you do with patients on the gabapentinoids, 
So gabapentin, Lyrica, and methadone. That's a that's a fairly common issue. There's no federal guideline, and you know, there's no in our state. There's no state guideline mm-hmm. or regulation about gabapentinoids, Darlene. So, I, and it, what I've seen is that every clinic has a different policy or no policy about gabapentinoids, and you know, I've seen different clinics have different approaches, and without judgment, I've seen the fallout. And the consequence of both approaches. So there are OTPs that have a zero gabapentinoid policy, which may increase the safety for those participants in terms of risk of overdose and death, considering that gabapentinoids are commonly implicated in opioid overdose deaths. However, I also have seen many patients not able to access care because they take a gabapentinoid medication but would benefit from methadone. And so how do you balance that? Um, I've also seen programs where they're very lax with their policies regarding other sedating medications, whether it's gabapentinoids, benzodiazepines, wh- you know, whatever it is. And those patients are, are, are at high risk and they also seem to be still struggling in active addiction because they're not encouraged to, you know, well, hopefully they're they're not they're not getting supported with alternatives. Let's put it that way to yeah. treat their pain. And I think anxiety. that's I think that's a really good point. Personally, I tell I advise all of my patients about sedating medications and alcohol. So any CNS depressant, especially gabapentinoids and gabapentin more so even than Lyrica because it's synergistic with opioids. And you can listen to our episode on gabapentin to learn more about this. But gabapentinoids and benzodiazepines or any other sedative and and especially alcohol are extremely dangerous with methadone uh, because methadone is a full opioid agonist. And so we have to explicitly explain the risks of using both, whether or not those medications are prescribed. So whether a benzodiazepine or gabapentin is prescribed or not, the risk still exists. It is somewhat, do- it is dose dependent, of course, but I have this conversation and try and find an alternative. Now, sometimes, especially, I don't really think this is true for benzodiazepines, although I know some psychiatrists would disagree with me, but and we could talk about benzos in a minute, but for gabapentin, and Lyrica, sometimes it's the best medication for a patient and they have neuropathy or another condition where they've tried and failed multiple other things and gabapentin is the best medication for them and they're using it safely and they don't appear intoxicated or sedated with their stable methadone dose and you observe this every day when you dose them and with you know informed consent that they're on a sedating medication that's synergistic with methadone you document that you document the plan you warn them about the risk of driving with these medications and the risk of overdose and that's that's typically the plan that that I um I employ and with the right to change my mind at any point <laughs> and this is the benefit of interdisciplinary team meetings um and collateral from family that if something comes forward and people are saying you know what they're impaired or they seem to be using this more or they don't seem okay, then we have to have a discussion about what needs to change and what we can do to support them. I think that's such excellent advice. And I'm pretty sure that's what Dr. Hal taught us too, is 
you, whenever you start any medication, especially one that carries that kind of risk. So I, it's like you said, benzodiazepines, I think we could use the same advice. It's the same advice when you have somebody who's on a benzodiazepine is you need to be able to have an exit strategy. And so if somebody comes in on that, you, if you don't have that discussion on the first day, it's so much harder 10 months down the road when it's a problem. And they're like, well, why, why now? Why are you saying something now? Nobody ever told me this. And so I, I agree with you. Informed consent, document it, discuss it and bring it. I, I know. And I tend to, you know, I always talk in lowest effective dose. Let's really work on this. Our goal, even if you're on this, our goal is to try to get you off this. And let's really, let's try to find alternatives. And I try not to get them started on them in the first place. And if it, like you said, there are some patients that really, that maybe ends up being the best medicine. And like you said, it, it's a, it's a fine line between having a hard no and people who end up not receiving care. And I agree with you. And then the complete opposite of, well, we just, we don't have any oversight. It It is, again, we have to use, we have to use a very, you're, you are using a very dangerous medication. And so it needs really, really careful monitoring. Those patients need closer following if they're on those medications. So I'm going to use right. that same, that same response with benzodiazepines. It's the exact same response. Very careful. And those are very, those need to be, I think, much more seldom use. We need to really, really try other alternatives because right. I see so many more problems. I don't know about you, but in in the methadone clinic, we we tend to see much more problems with those. Problematic. Yeah. And yeah. it's hard. So, you know, there's no contraindication for patients to start on or be on methadone or buprenorphine if they're taking a CNS depressant. Now, that's a change. We yes. used to have a hard stop and not even initiate um, MOUD if people were on benzodiazepines. However, we now know that people just die, you know, that, that yeah. they're dying from their opioid use disorder and having you know, the treatment and the milieu and the support and the coping skills and everything that and the safety of a partial agonist like buprenorphine or the monitoring of a medication like methadone is far safer than illicit heroin or fentanyl. So, again, it comes down to risk mitigation, harm reduction thinking, and it becomes really difficult. Like, I struggle with this all the time in terms of people who are using haphazardly or riskily other substances with methadone they're still struggling to become stable and of course they are i mean people mm -hmm. don't just turn into abstinent you know uh opioid users overnight when they become a member of an otp i mean if it was that easy everyone would be referred and would be in an otp for their opioid use yes. disorder it's not that easy but somehow society thinks that's how it should be right and i think sometimes we think that's how it should be like yeah. well now you're on methadone we expect you to be abstinent and we expect you to be sober 100% which is oftentimes a really um un unrealistic ask but you're right i agree with you we we sh it should not be a contradiction however we should work towards getting people off benzodiazepines and they need to agree to a, pl to a plan before yeah. they begin. Okay. And what you said is so true. 
The worst is inheriting a patient that's seen another provider one or two times even, and they haven't brought it up. And then you're the one that's like, and let's talk about a plan about your Alprazolam. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, that happened to me today. Can I just tell you? Okay. So, and there are some people that absolutely need to be detoxified or have medically managed withdrawal management of their benzos immediately. There are some people that should not it should not be a conditional thing. You know, people who are using extremely haphazardly and they need high inpatient. doses. Yes. Right. A history of overdose, et cetera. Pregnant women need to be treated in the inpatient setting. So sometimes you just have to refer people to a higher level of care if you're not comfortable um, or if you think that they're more at risk for dying than, than staying alive. And, um, you know, and then obviously always take them back after they've had treatment for their benzodiazepine use disorder. Um, because you always want to, you never want to be a place that people can't come to. We're the last stop, you know, OTPs are the last stop. You should not be firing people from an OTP because if you fire they, they have nowhere OTP, else to go. Yeah, there's nowhere else to go. So. Yeah. So on that same note, because this is another one that I frequently see on the message boards, alcohol use. And I just had this this week. This came up in our clinic. So when you have someone who's actively using with an alcohol use disorder and on on methadone, I mean, that's it's very risky and and very dangerous. But again, what 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 is your what's been your approach, Paula? Like, and it's really hard. Is the, you're asking me the hard so, questions. I, I should be asking you these hard <laughs> questions. I mean, we have we breathalyze people um, yes. every every day if we think that they're intoxicated or if they smell of alcohol or if we know that they have a risk for um, drinking. We also have ETG on our um, urine drug urine drug panel. screens. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not to catch people and get them in trouble. It's just to guide treatment. But if we detect that someone is drinking heavily, or even you know, not really supposed to drink alcohol at all when you take methadone because it's a CNS depressant. So if we identify that someone is drinking alcohol, we talk, we talk to them. And when I say we, their therapist, myself, the nurse, the whole team, the dosing nurse, our case manager, and we try and identify why. Mm-hmm. So what's going on? Why are you, you know, why is alcohol back in the equation or continuing to be in the picture? And what what can we do to help you? Yeah. We prescribe a lot of acamprosate in our clinic yes. and a lot of topiramate and we do ear acupuncture. We we have groups we encourage people to come to and we just increase the level of intensity of treatment. We use medications to help with alcohol cravings and we follow up and we follow up and we follow up and we monitor and we see if people need to be uh, detoxed or, you know, yeah need assistance with withdrawal and we do that all the time and that's real dodgy right if someone's on methadone and they need to be withdrawn from alcohol you know how do you do that because you need to know what you're doing you don't want to give them a whopping it's very complicated yeah you definitely don't want to give them phenobarbital that will put them into withdrawal from their methadone and so you need to just follow them up and what do you do that's what we do and then if they're having really haphazard drinking we talk about decreasing their methadone dose to mitigate the risk of their alcohol use. But honestly, Darlene, I use that as a last resort because I don't want to put them at risk for returning to use their opioids 
and their alcohol. Mm -hmm. But if their dose is high of methadone and I'm worried that they're at risk for dying, I mean, I'm like, I've got to take your methadone down to make sure that, you know, your overall risk is low. And I love it that you said that. Don't forget to treat their alcohol use disorder. I think sometimes we get really focused on the alcohol withdrawal. But yeah, we talked about acamprosate and topiramate and and like offer them some treatment. Don't forget, like I think sometimes we forget, well, they're on methadone, so we can't give them Vivitrol, but you absolutely can still treat them with other medications to reduce their cravings. And please do that because that can make a big difference for a lot of them because many of them don't want to drink. There's something going on. They've had a stressor and there's and there's trying to self-medicate again their moods down so we need to treat that like you said we need to increase their services that's why the otps we have you have the behavioral health services they have their counselor you need to use that's where you utilize that team approach i love that so i agree you just say it better paula that's why i ask you that's that's not true so and then the last question And this kind of piggybacks on that. This has been something kind of hotly debated. And I, I was going to say this one, we, I had to look up because this was something that I always just assumed too. Is the counseling a requirement? Is that a federal requirement in a methadone OTP? Do so if a client does not or refuses counseling, is that a reason for them to be discharged? Because I've seen this happen. So they miss their counseling visits and or they refuse to participate. Is that is that against a federal requirement? And yeah. Yeah. And tell me what the answer is. So on when we when I looked this up, the short answer is. It is no, it is not a federal requirement. And now it is a requirement that you have and tailor behavioral health services to the patient so that we offer them and they are tailored to the needs of the patient. So you increase services and that may mean the patient is seen weekly. They may be seen daily. But if a patient is very stable and doing well, maybe they only need to check in with a counselor or a group once a month or once every couple of months. So that it's an it's on an individual basis and it's not tied to their medication. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, why? Yeah. yeah. Why would we would not pull someone's life? It's like saying, you know, we're giving you a a cardiac medication to keep your heart from failing. And if you you didn't show up to your cardiac rehab, we're going to just take your medication away. Like that's preposterous. We would not do that. Um, And so, you know, we need to get away from that mindset. It was a really good question. And there was a lot of misunderstanding because the wording on the guidelines and the way that was always taught to us, it's been strongly encouraged. And that was message. I mean, I remember from our training days, Paul's, it's always been strongly encouraged and we do strongly encourage it. I mean, our patients have been traumatized. They have been through so much, not just from their substance use, but even sometimes medically traumatized from 
from everything else that's happened to them. And so it's not that the behavioral health services are not important and that we don't encourage it, but we don't want to tie that to administering or removing services for a patient. We want to just make sure that we tailor it to what they need at the time. Absolutely. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. So. And you know, the value, I mean, this the value of of your counselor at your OTP is huge. So absolutely having someone that you know and trust that you see often and they don't only provide um counseling, like traditional type counseling, but classically counselors and therapists in OTP settings work like liaisons and case managers they help with housing they help people navigate the judicial system they you know they're like coaches i mean they're really like, amazing yeah. i've met yeah. some really <clears throat> incredible um therapists that work at yeah. otps and listen anyone who gets up every morning at 3 30 to be at work by five is a pretty is, amazing is, person right <laughs> i mean come on they're incredible yeah. we love them yeah absolutely all right i think that's great so just in summary, summary. So in summary, OTPs or opioid treatment programs are the home of methadone treatment for opioid use disorder. They've um, had rules and guidelines governing um, the use of methadone for decades and decades. There haven't been significant changes to the federal guidelines and rules for the last 20 years, even though there have been updated guidelines released about every five years. However, with the pandemic um, shutting everything down, there were sweeping changes, especially around take-home doses of methadone, which demonstrated increased accessibility to treatment and patient autonomy and not an increase in uh, diversion and misuse. So there are proposed rule changes that we're waiting to become firm that will um, change destigmatizing language, change admission criteria, increase harm reduction and kind of medical home modeling. They'll also continue this change of take home um, allowances, making it making it the to the discretion of the medical team to give people take home doses of methadone almost immediately when they um, engage in treatment. Um, some of those have been uh, made permanent already. Some of them we're waiting to hear. And in the meantime, you know, we continue to look at the treatment of folks with methadone as an ever important option, especially with fentanyl. We're hoping that there'll be more laxity around induction dosing. We don't see benzodiazepines or gabapentinoids as a contraindication to starting people on methadone. However, we do not we are very cautious around the use of CNS depressants with methadone and we document and we use informed consent and we help people find more safe alternatives. Counseling is not a federal requirement for OTPs. It, maybe it is in your state. However, individuals should be treated according to their treatment plan that's set up by the OTP. And the bottom line is, you know, we need people to engage in treatment and we've got to meet them. And, and make it accessible to them, their life, and, and get them well on their road to recovery. That is great. Thank you so much, Paula. Have a great night. Thank you. Bye. Until next time. 
Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.